Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you will find three separate speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Lucy. Hi, I'm Lucy. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm laughing because I've been terrified all day, and then when they couldn't find the recorder, I was really pissed off. I'm like, you mean you're not recording me? You've got to be kidding. I mean, I just think God has such a good sense of humor. There's this somewhat blasphemous 80s song that talks about God has a really good sense of humor, and I just think my God really does. And I was terrified about my sponsor coming, and then yesterday he told me he wasn't coming, and it just... It's like best laid plans, right? It's like whatever happens, God laughs and there's another plan for me. Um, So just to get the numbers out of the way, I came in in February, around February 22nd, 2006. Um, I became abstinent January 28th, 2008. Uh, I've been abstinent four years and seven months. My abstinence is, is breakfast, lunch, dinner, and a snack, and I am down two sizes, and I'm wearing a knit dress today. Um, just a couple of things that I, I really want to say. My abstinence has not been perfect at all. I've had snacks at 3 o'clock in the morning. That is not really a snack. I have had snacks after large meals. A snack to me is something that gets you from one meal to the other when you're working out or you're tired. I have put down the food and drank an entire bottle of wine over the day and finished it off with a Mai Tai. I have gone by cake stores and not eaten the cake and gone next door to buy underwear and spent $3,000. It is not easy to spend $3,000 on underwear. Um, So I just want to say I don't just struggle with food. I struggle with being an addict, period. And the only resolution for my struggle is my higher power. That's it. That's absolutely it. And the only other resolution for my struggle is my fellows. And I just want to share briefly, um, and then I want to start with my story, what's happened to me in the last week. I was away at a mother-daughter weekend with my mother and my sister. My mother began the weekend by saying, are you wearing any underwear? Um, And I really was going down hard. I was going down really, really hard. I was eating. I was drinking. I was obsessing. Um, I, I was going down. And I couldn't get a line out, and I called my girlfriend. And my girlfriend called me while I had just ordered a platter of breakfast pastries for breakfast. I do not do that. I order oatmeal and I order berries. Not because I'm perfect, because I can't handle those sugary things. And I told her I just ordered a, a plateful of breakfast pastries. And that's what we do. She reached out her hand to me, like they say in the first step, in the AA 12 and 12, like a drowning man. And she helped me. And she talked to me about God, and she talked to me about how I was feeling about my mom, and how I was feeling about my sister, and and what I was eating, and what I was doing. And she never blamed me. And she took my call. And, you know, Bill W. says that we, we make strides, but we have huge setbacks. And that was a huge setback for me. And I only recovered because of that phone call. And that's what our fellows do, and that's what our higher power does. That, I mean, I couldn't even get a cell phone, and I managed to get a call. And before I came here, I called a fellow and said, I'm terrified. And she said, you take a deep breath, and you say the serenity prayer. And so she showed up for me tonight. 
And that's what we do for each other. And I didn't come in here wanting any of you at all. I thought I was super, super popular, and I had a lot of friends, and I did not relate to being an introvert. I didn't relate to being an isolator. So I talk a little bit about my childhood. Like I tell you in some of the stories, I had every possible advantage. I had beautiful parents. I had athletic parents. I had parents who went to very fancy schools. I lived in a very large home. Um, My family had lived in that area for a very long time. And when I was six years old, my dad decided to move to Southeast Asia to do humanitarian work, and I didn't see him for three months. And I had no friends. I was the only white kid in my class. I was fundamentally the only person who spoke English in my class of about 500 people. Um, There was no kids around, and so what I learned to do was to read and to fantasize. And because I was in a British Commonwealth country, um, they were all... English books, and so they would talk about high tea, and you would have high tea in boarding school, and there would be scones, and jams, and puddings, and cakes, and I mean, it would go on, and on, and on, and on, and on, and that was the first slip, or I don't know what you call it, fantasy binge I ever remember having, which I was had first communion, and you're not allowed to eat before your first communion, in those days it was three hours before, now I think they're a little more lenient, and I was reading this book, and it was about what all these kids were eating, and, and so I just started eating. And my mom was like, well, I didn't know you weren't supposed to eat. And I was like, you know, and I felt so guilty about it. And that, I think, has been the fundamental fact of my life, of feeling incredibly guilty and incredibly bad. And, like, I did something that God disapproved of. And I don't feel that way anymore. Do I still feel bad? Yeah. Do I still feel guilt? Yes. Do I feel like God hates me? Absolutely not. And that is a miracle of these steps, and that is only because of this room. So I remember the first time I felt that my mom really understood me was there was no pasteurized milk. It was really the third world. I mean, there were cobras and trees. I would pick off ticks every night. I couldn't sleep in my own room because my room had been robbed so many times and I had been drugged. So it was a fairly, um, to use a California slang, gnarly existence. Um, so that's that's the way that I that I lived. Um, And they had this one place that had sort of these phony ice cream things. I think they must have been made of evaporated milk. And they came in these gigantic sundaes that were super colorful. And my mom one day, she said, do you want to go there after school? And I felt this feeling like, oh, thank you. My mom understands me. My mom knows what I need. And what I need is that gigantic thing filled with, you know, disgusting. If it was a maraschino cherry, that would be like a nature food. I mean, like... Pineapple and green things and bananas and just this like weird ice milk stuff. And that's, you know, that's how I felt understood. And then I would read fantasy and I would just sort of, you know, go off in this world. And my life actually, in a funny way, was quite dangerous. Um, my parents, for whatever reason, and I, I have largely, I had a slight slip last weekend, but I've largely forgiven them for this. They were not physically tremendously attentive. So, for example, I'd be severely bitten by a dog. I'd be mauled. I couldn't walk. They wouldn't come get me. I had rheumatic fever. They didn't believe me. I had to take myself to the doctor. So what I learned very early is nobody's coming to get you, and let's be self-reliant. Let's use our self-will. And I was really proud of it. I was so proud of my self-will. I'm like, if we're lost in the Gobi Desert, babe, I'm going to take care of you. And I know from this program that really doesn't work. I'm really glad I saved my life as a child, and I'm very, very grateful for it, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work now as an adult. It just 
just doesn't, I don't know what to say. It's like the first two steps. So um, we traveled the rest of the way around the world. I, you know, I walked over the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan through Taliban country. I was left alone with dysentery in Afghanistan. I had dysentery in Nepal. I lost a third of my body weight. Our accommodations were, I was in the Salvation Army Hospital in Calcutta. Um, it was not exactly luxury, and my parents basically left me to my own devices. And then I got back to the United States, and of course I, you know, when people ask me about Israel, I said, Israel, they had ice cream. I mean, that's, that was my, that's still when somebody says Israel, I'm like, Israel, they have ice cream. That was my first taste of pasteurized ice cream. And then I got back to the United States, and it was big cars and big buildings, and of course I wasn't American anymore, and I didn't know how to be an American kid. But I knew how to eat, and my next-door neighbor was a Viennese baker. And she introduced me to cheese Danish, and I would manipulate anything to get these cheese Danish. And I was fascinated that there was cheese in the Danish. Like, wow, like you could have a, like a sweet roll with cheese in it? Like, that's like too good. And um, so that was fabulous. And then she would tell me that I, you know, wasn't dressing right. And... I didn't know how to dress. You know, I was basically Southeast Asian. And during that whole time, I was a very serious ballet dancer, and they were always after me to, to lose weight. And, um, and I was always about the third fattest in the class. I always knew exactly where I was. So um, it was a very famous ballet company. It was internationally renowned. And all my girlfriends were in the Nutcracker. My best friend was playing Clara. And they said to me, Lucy, you can't be in the show because you're too fat. And I'm thinking to myself, look, I have to get in a mouse costume. How hard is that? You know, it's really not that. But that was my life, as being told I was too large. And so I was left with the other dancers who weren't as good because all the really great ones were on stage. And they would come in and say, does anybody know why you're here? And I'd raise my hand and say, yeah, you know, we're too fat. I've had too many eclairs. And that was, that was a big part of my life. It was very similar to being, you know, a serious, a serious athlete. So... I went on a diet and, you know, lost the weight. I think I got down to around 125, and I looked at myself in the mirror in eighth grade. I was 13, and I thought, it's not enough. My hips are still swaying. Well, I have hips. You know, you'd have to cut off a hip bone with me to make my hips more narrow. I mean, I have hips. That's going to happen. So I thought, it's not enough. So I gained the weight back. And I got up to about as high as about 164. I may have weighed more in my life. I have no idea. I'm 5'6". I really have no idea. I'm one of those people who can't weigh themselves because I go crazy and it becomes my higher power. And I used to just stand in front of the refrigerator and open the door and just stare inside. Like magically something would appear. Magic, you know, I would just stare and stare and stare. And by this time I was 15 in the full blush of, you know, hormonal insanity. And so I'd go to the beach with my girlfriends, and they'd be in their bikinis, and I'd be wearing jeans. So, you know, I'd have a bikini top and jeans, or I'd have, like, a strategically draped towel, you know. And I used to make jokes. I used to say, I can teach you how to look really thin in bed. You have to do, like, these sheets. And I had this whole, like, comedy routine worked up, you know. And i go sideways and all this stuff. And, but it was painful. I'd be in a swimming pool in a pair of jeans. You know, it wasn't comfortable. I'd be dry, I'd be, you know, we'd be bike riding and I'd be in my girlfriend's uh, bathrobe. Because I knew I was bad. I knew God hated me because I couldn't be perfect. And, and I grew up in very strict religious schools. And, um, and unfortunately the message is God likes you if you're perfect and if you don't succumb to temptation. And all I knew was temptation. 
All I knew was give me a Quaalude, give me some no-dos, give me some alcohol, and give me not just a gallon, because I went to boarding school and they had these um, vats of ice cream. I mean, they were like, when you go to Baskin-Robbins, how they dish them out. And we would just sit there on the floor and we would just like eat them. And our biggest thing when I went away to school, I was sent away to school. No, I, was really, I wasn't really sent. I sent myself because of the amount of defiance and rebellion I was in. And I knew that if I stayed at home, it wouldn't, wouldn't work well. And defiance has been a big part of my character defects. And I didn't learn until I came in here how much of a part of my addiction defiance really plays. So um, that, was, that was my high school and trying to get accepted by boys and trying to get accepted by my father and, and trying to get good grades and, you know, trying to get this approval, this approval, this approval. And then finally my mother said to me, well, you know, you're, you're so rebellious, why don't you try acting? And, of course, they said, well, we'll cast you in the lead, but you have to lose weight. And so that happened. But I had these rituals that have been going on since I was 10 where I would eat candy and buy candy in a particular way. So there was a, at my school, there was a um, vending machine that had Coke, and it was Tab at the time, and they had Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. And I would sit beside the vending machine, and I would lean against it like it was a parent or a teddy bear or something. I would lean against the vending machine, and I would slowly eat these Reese's Peanut Butter Cups as a comfort, and that's what I would do. Um... Then when I graduated from college, there was this really hot boy that I was interested in, and he was also kind of famous. And um, God, I hope he's not listening to this. And he had really long hair, and he was just uh, smoking hot. So anyway, I decided, even though I had another girlfriend, I decided I was going to lose more weight. So I went on this insane diet. At the time, I worked at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and I, <laughs> I, I vowed that I would never taste any of it, and I was the one in, making, in charge of making the strawberry pies, so I looked like I was bleeding all the time because I had all this strawberry gelatin all the way up my arms, and, and that summer what I did is I drank Perrier because it was supposed to be healthy. It's when Perrier first came on the market, and I was like, Perrier is healthy. I'm like, okay, I'll drink that, and then I ate cottage cheese, which I largely spit out into the wastebasket or spit out cheese, and then I would make other people really fancy food. I would make my dad... He'd come home from work. I'd be like, literally, do you want lobster thermidor? He'd say, sure. I mean, I flamed everything. So what I was really doing is because I couldn't eat, I was making other people food. And my family is very gourmet, which sort of translates that there's a lot of compulsive overeaters in the family. But they, you know, they were sort of those five-course people, and they were big drinkers. They had a wine cellar, which, you know, to me is it's nice, but it's another slight translation for alcoholism or anotherism. So there was a lot of pride around cooking if you were a good cook, and there was sort of competitive cooking in my family. You know, my cousins, my grandmother, and my grandmother would say, well, you know, your cousin served a really beautiful meal last night. <laughs> and, um, and when you would eat with them, you know, nobody's plate would be stationary. The plates would be going like this, and everybody would be passing their plates like, like Chinese jugglers, you know, in those incredible stories. There'd be acrobats. You'd, and somebody would be saying, is this cooked in a copper pot or a silver pot? And I would get nervous because you couldn't eat your own food because it was aloft, you know. So um, that was my family. So I lost all this weight by spitting out food. And then invariably, after two months of this, I went on a binge. And then I heard that you could throw up by consuming mustard and something else. So I consumed this massive amount of Coleman's dry mustard, and, and nothing happened except I burped mustard for four days. So that was the end of that. And, um, 
So that went on for a very long time, and I was a performer, and I was told on a regular basis that I, you know, couldn't be hired because I um, was, they would say things like, you're a little too hippie, or I'd be at a costume, and they'd say, you know, if you could stand still, we're just trying to make you look thin, and um, so that went on for a long time. In the meantime, I would go on these insane diets. I would eat one diet was you only ate pineapple for one day, and this other diet was you had um, grapefruit and a lot of hard-boiled eggs, and, and then there was these little candies called AIDS, ironically enough, A-Y-D-S, and you would eat a lot of those. Of course, I ate a lot of those. I actually did a ton of speed, and it never bothered me. I could just eat right through it. I mean, I, I, just, I didn't actually use it to lose weight. I used it to stay up. I could just, like, keep on eating, no problem. And my basic reaction was, if, if you say you're full, you're kind of a weenie, just push through it. You know, I'm like, why, why, why would being full stop you? And, um, and I would carry my scale with me wherever I went um, to make sure it was the right one. So I would travel with a scale, and I would weigh myself four and five times a day. Um, and then as I got into my 30s and 40s, it got a little more expensive. I would, you know, meet the latest Hollywood action star, and I would go see his nutritionist. And the guy would tell me to only eat um, no carbs, no carbs. So it was just uh, protein and vegetables, only the problem was I couldn't keep that in my system, so I spent all the time in the bathroom. And then he would, like, pitch my underarm fat and say, you know, you have 33.3%, you're legally obese or something. And then I would go to my dermatologist, and she'd say, oh, you know, you know, we can get rid of that cellulite. And they'd take pictures of me in my underwear, which is pretty humiliating, actually, with gigantic felt circles of what they could cut out, and that would cost me 20 grand. I did not do that. And um, I w- my favorite one is I went to a Turkish healer who told me to suck on a no, he told me to suck on a sugar cube and say three Hail Marys and I would feel better. But, I mean, I, I went to acupuncturist. Um, essentially, if you walked up to me in the street and you looked good and you told me that I could lose weight, I'd give you whatever I could. I gave a guy $6,000 at a time when I couldn't afford it because he told me he could fix me by going to Gold's Gym. That made me incredibly sick, and I got injured. So I mean, that's what I did. That's what I did. And... You know, there's a part in the big book, and I know you big book aficionados will know it better than I do. It's around the 60s where it talks about how we're two people, and we show one face to one person and another face to another person, and that was the story of my life until I came here. And when I came here, I, I was, I'd seen 14 therapists, literally. I, I mean 14, like it might be 14. I mean I counted 14. Um, and they were all great. It's just they couldn't handle my addiction um, and it talks about in the big book how we should you know seek outside help so I finally found this woman who specialized in food and she had a lot of years in OA and she just kept saying just go just go just go and she never badgered me but she would say just go just go just go and she would bring me like a meeting guide and, and but it would be for the valley and I'd go oh the valley is not that you know convenient for those of you who are listening to this overseas it's 20 minutes away maybe 18 so you know and I thought that if there was a big sign that said OA outside, I would just drive it. Um, it would be convenient. And um, so one day after a particular binge, and how, how I kind of was handling my food by that time when I came in was I would binge about every third day. I had one day to feel acute remorse, one day to feel like, okay, and one day to feel like starting to get really intense. I got a binge. I got a binge. I don't know how to. And then the rest of the time I would do what I call grazed. 
And Grey's was sort of the ladylike word for binging. So I would go to Starbucks maybe four times a day. And I would have like a little bite of this and a little bite of that. And it was just a little like bite. And that, that's what I would do. So it's kind of like I thought of it as sort of pretty eating. I thought it was like very French. You know, you had ten courses of very small items. So um, that's what I was doing. And... After a particular binge, and how my binges would work is I would get disappointed after dinner. I'm pretty much exclusively a night eater, which is also tricky because during the day, I congratulate myself for being so perfect. Look at what I ate. I had a chef's salad. No cheese. I mean, I was very involved in my own ego, and and, um, and pro- probably the phrase that, that strikes me most when I came in this program is relieve me from the bondage of self. And I think that's what the big book talks about so much. The bondage of self, man, it, it just kills me. So um, anyway, so I would tell myself every day that I wasn't going to compulsively overeat because I'd have a really nice breakfast, and then I would have a nice lunch, and then I would have a fine dinner. And then around 10 o'clock, I'd be like, well, I'll have a cashew. And then it would be, well, I'll have a chip. Well, that cashew didn't have a lot of salt on it, so I'm going to have some more of those cashews. Well, you know, maybe I'll have some ice cream. And, it, and I would stand in my pantry and just make a circuit, and then I would go around the corner of the freezer, and I would go to the freezer, and my husband would say, come to bed, and I'm like, in a minute. And then I would go to the alcohol, and then I'd break out the alcohol. Well, then, of course, after I'd had a couple drinks, then I'd eat more chips. So then I'd go have the chips. Then I'd go back to the ice cream, and then I'd decide it was time to watch old movies or French television at 3 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd be, you know, and then how I knew how much I ate is I would check the garbage in the morning. Now we go on until about three. So I did one of, had one of those nights, and I was sitting on a beach, and my husband was surfing, and I thought, everybody in California is having a great time but me. I'm sitting on the, which is ego, I'm sitting on the beach feeling like my gut is hanging over my legs, feeling bloated, feeling miserable, feeling hungover in every way imaginable. Everybody's having a great time, and I cannot tell anybody what I'm doing. I can't tell my sister, who I love and adore. I can't tell anybody. And so I called this woman who was my therapist, and she said, you need to get to an OA meeting. And I was at a 7.30 meeting on Hill Street the next morning. Now, I'd love to tell you that was the end of the story, but it wasn't. For two years, I arrived late. I left early. I would come to this meeting. I would sit in the back because that's all I could handle. I was so afraid. I was so afraid of being taken over. I felt like OA was going to be like like a horror movie, like Alien. Like they were going to come, and they were going to like get you and <laughs> trap you and... I was going to be like, I don't know, not have any self-will left, which is true. But, um, you know, that something horrible was going to happen. I was just frightened, basically. And I spent two years sort of involved in this yo-yo thing, and I finally got a sponsor. And then I went on vacation to my favorite place on earth, which is Paris. And I was so excited, and I went to see my two best friends, and I was, like, so happy. And, of course, I told them what I was going to eat. So I said, when I get off the plane, we're going to have this, and we're going to have this. And actually, the guy in the room who started the program in France is here, and I'm so grateful to him because he really needed it. So anyway, so I go to eat, and I come back, and I, I'm i in a hotel, so i got a mini bar. It's like my favorite thing. So I go after the cheese and the mini bar, you know, and the cheese crisp. And the next morning, I wake up. I think I might have had, opened a half bottle of champagne. I had a sip of that, too. But I, the next morning, I'm counting cheese crisps, crisps in the wastebasket. And how many did I eat? Was it a real binge? Was it not binge? And I got on my knees, and I said, God, I don't know what to do. Please help me. And in that second, I I felt an instant of relief of, like, if I gave it to God, if I really gave it to God, I wouldn't have to worry. I would be protected. 
And then I spent the next two weeks trying to figure out why I was having such a horrible time in France. Well, because I was looking for hope outside of myself. You know, I wasn't spiritually aligned. And um, I got back here, and, and I took one look at my dog, and she had all these red spots on her, so I rushed to the emergency room. And she said, well, she's seriously ill. And she was in and out there for 12 days, and so I called my sponsor, who I hadn't talked to for three weeks, because, of course, I've been in France. You don't call your sponsor when you're in France. You don't go to meetings when you're in France. It's France. So I um, called her, and she said, well, Lucy, I've moved on, you know, um, I've taken on other sponsees. I didn't hear from you. You said you were going to show up. And for whatever you think about that, that was the best thing that could ever have happened to me. The best thing, you know. And she and I are really good friends now, and it's, it's that's one of the miracles of the program. And I called somebody I knew was an AA, and um, he hooked me up with my sponsor, who's been my sponsor ever since. And I talked to her on the phone on Wednesday and I became abstinent on, on Tuesday, and my dog died on Wednesday. And I was fully present and fully abstinent for her death. And that's been the way it's been um, ever since. And I, I want to talk a little bit how my life has changed. Um, gosh, I'm doing things now in my career that are not possible without this program. They, they simply are not. I would be too scared. I would be too frightened. I'm able to be kind. I'm able to be kind to my mother-in-law. I'm able to wish her happy birthday. I'm able to notice today that I'm not present with my husband because I'm worried about speaking, so I need to get out of my own head and be present with my husband. Um, I can pray before a meal and ask my higher power for help. I can go to the Hollywood Bowl and not eat everything in my box and three boxes over and then go to the snack stand and get more because I call my girlfriends and I say, here's what I'm going to eat. Here's everything I'm going to put in my mouth. And believe it or not, it's a relief. I still think, gosh, wouldn't it be great to eat whatever you wanted? But the truth is, at this point, it's better for me if I turn my food in. I hate doing it. I really don't like it. I don't like being honest with my sponsor. I don't have body image issues for the most part anymore. I saw a fellow at the beach. I'm like, it's so great to see you. I go to pool parties. It's not a problem. And it's not because I'm thin, because I'm not that thin. You know, I have sponsees that are a size two, and they feel weird about the way they look. It's, it's not about the weight. It's about that I'm not, I'm still self-obsessed, just like the big book says, but I'm not as self-obsessed as I was. Um, and I really, really feel this program is, is all about your higher power. It's 100%. For me, I have to take the action. I have to make the phone call. I have to make the outreach calls, but it's all about your higher power. For me, also, it's been about discipline. It says in the big book that we, um, God disciplines us because we're undisciplined people. Um, what I've learned to do here is the same thing day after day, which is, is gives me such a great tool wherever I go. So I get up every morning, I hit my knees immediately, I do a reading, I do an inventory, my fears, my resentments, my gratitude list. Um, most days I try to meditate a couple times a day. Um, sometimes I don't at all. It's not my forte, but it's definitely something I'm working on. I make two outreach calls a day. And that's what I'm trying to bring forward into my life, whether it's my life with my husband or my family or my work, to do the same darn thing day after day. Because I truly believe this, this disease is no match for your higher power and no match for consistency and repetition. I believe this is a disease that will erode if you keep throwing the same tool at it over and over and over and over again. And then one day it's just gone. I have given up foods that I'm allergic to. I'm allergic to milk. I love cheese. I was never going to give it up. One day I just did. That's a miracle. I, I was sitting next to this woman at a wedding, and I thought, she looks amazing. She doesn't eat cheese. 
I'll never be able to do that. But it wasn't about it the way she looked. It was about the way I, I feel bad when I eat cheese. But, you know, before that didn't, ah, who cares, a little diarrhea, a little gas, no problem, eat on. You know, I mean, that wasn't really an issue for me. But I've been able to give up things like that. Do I give, want to give up more things? Yes, absolutely. But that is what I think of as divine intervention. That is really God's higher power um, working in my life. Let's see how much time I have. Okay, I want to talk a tiny bit about the steps um, for those of you who feel resistance. I want to talk about the steps from, like, I don't know how much I know about them because I don't. I just want to talk a little, little bit about the challenges I had working them. Step number one, life become unmanageable. I hated that. It attacked my pride. I was like, F you, I'm not in the gutter. I have a car. So, but I, when I got that my food was unmanageable and my mind was unmanageable, then I could get into this step. Step two, sanity pissed me off. I've been to 14 shrinks, paid hundreds of thousands of dollars. I was like, I do not want to believe I've not been brought to sanity. But then I could see that what I did with my food was insane. And I also saw that the power I had that greater uh, than myself was a, a punitive God of childhood and not a loving, unconditional, warm, you know, person or deity or whatever you want to call it that thinks of you as a beautiful child of God. And if people in here don't believe in God, that I have no problem with that. I mean, if you're a newcomer, choose whatever you like. Choose the group. I mean, it's whatever works for you. Um, Third step is a step I work work constantly. Um, fourth step, a lot of people talk about how fabulous the fourth step was. To me, it was like seeing a horror film. I literally felt like I just saw a horror film. Like, I cannot believe what I just saw. That is amazing. I mean, I just felt like it was death and destruction everywhere. Um, so a lot of people come off on a pink cloud. That really wasn't me. It woke me up. And fifth step... I was ready to move on. She's like, no, you go home. You get on your knees. Um, and my sponsor is an enormous part of my life. I call her every day. I call her about everything. What do I buy at the store? What meeting do I go to? What about my sex life with my husband? What about the dog? Do I go to this doctor? Do I, not? I mean, everything. Um, six and seven are steps I work a lot. Um, they are the steps to me that are the most depressing. Six and seven I work a lot. But I, I went through a depression doing them. Um, eight and nine I thought would be really easy. I'm like one of those. I was like, oh, I apologize easily. No, I didn't. I did like nine light. I would apologize to people in front of other people. So I had to kind of, my sponsor finally said to me, look, this is ego deflating. I thought, okay, got it. Tenth step terrified me because I thought I had to be honest more, and I'm terrified of being honest. I was like, oh, no, the tenth step. Eleventh step, I felt like, oh, thank God I can rest. (laughs) Twelfth step, I was really freaked out because I was like, I have not had a spiritual awakening. And then I started reading about it, and I thought, am I more awake than I was on number one? Yes, I am. Okay, good. That's enough. And they talk about, in the big book, too, and in some of our other literature, I'm not sure if it's a big book, the other literature, about a spiritual awakening as a personality change. And I thought, okay, okay, that I can do. So I just want to say thank you. I don't think say thank you to Martha for asking me, to the chip takers today, to say this program has changed every single aspect of my life for the better, that God willing, I never want to leave it. I have no other place to go. Um, and that if you're a newcomer, please just keep coming back, even if you don't understand it or think we're crazy or my favorite was I didn't like one of the speaker's shoes. But um, so please just keep coming back and thank you so much. Does anyone have any questions? Um, thank you so much for asking that question. Um, the question was, you talked about defiance in your dis- disease. 
What about defiance in your recovery? Um, defiance is everywhere in my recovery, and that's why I hit the third step so hard. And again, I feel defiance is a game of erosion with the help of my higher power and with getting down on my knees, but it is not quick. I mean, my sponsor says to me flat out, there's a reason you ate and drank, shopped, and acted out. It's not quick at all. I mean, all those substances did quickly what the steps do slowly, which is what my sponsor said. So I really work with my defiance a lot. And I see it turning in my food. I'll turn it in on Tuesday, but not on a Wednesday and on Thursday. So that's a defective character I, I, I really work with a lot. And I, I kind of, in a funny way, I'm, it's not very odd, but I'm sort of fond of it. I keep it very close. Like, I know you're having a very hard time. You're from when I was very young. Just come along with me. The 11th step, I do what they say to do in the Alcoholics Anonymous um, 11th step. I say the St. Francis Prayer, and I try to imagine myself as a channel of peace or as a channel of love, and then I say, where there's injury, let there be pardon. Where there's hatred, let there be love. And I try to constantly remember, particularly when I'm like, oh, I hate you and I don't like what you're saying, to be of service, to, for, to forgive rather than be forgiven, to comfort rather than be comforted, to love rather than be... That, that prayer is super important to me, and I try to meditate using it. And um, I'm not a great meditator, but it's something I'm really, really working on, and just see myself as one with the universe, because my experience is when you focus on others, my problems disappear. And service is something that I think we don't do enough of in OA, and service, I, I think service handles everything. It, it really does, because if I have to be a service, I've got to call somebody and say, can you take the literature, and can you take the key, and can you do this, and can you do the chips, and... And so I, I think being of service to others, it takes me out of my own self-obsession and bondage of self. Um, how I work my mar- uh, program in my marriage, um, that's really radical. <laughs> my girlfriend's smiling. I thought my husband was a jerk. Um, and I thought, <laughs> you know, he would say to me, you're not present. I'd be like, what is wrong with you? I'm right here. Like, look, I'm talking. Hello. And um, I was eating, and I was acting out, and I wasn't present. So I really like today, you know, I was sitting on the steps of our pool with him, and I was like, I've been obsessed about what I'm going to say tonight. I've got to really be nice to him, and I've got to ask him how he's doing. When he left, he said, good luck, and, which is really kind and sweet. So I try to really be there. So I work my program like crazy in my relationship because it's actually the hardest place to put it. Like when he said, well, did the plumber come today? And if so, why not? I'm like, plumber didn't tell me, honey. But I don't, you know, I try to be kind instead of snippy. I try to be kind to his family. I'm not very good at that. So for me, you know, using the 12th step in our relationships, that's one of the most, that's where the, what do they call it? Whether it's a rubber hits the road. That's like, that's, that's a tough one. So, yeah, I, I try hard there. Um, I didn't go into remorse. Um, it's the question is, what did I do in 6 and 7 when I was feeling depressed? I couldn't believe that I'd been to so many shrinks and had so many defects of character. So, and I was beating myself up. The trick with 6 and 7 for me is I've got them. I'm going to write about them. I'm not going to go into remorse and self-pity. It says really clear in the big book not to do that, but that's a defect of character. And that's a lot I've seen with, from sponsorship. I see when I sponsor my girls, if they go into self-pity, it doesn't work so well. So that's how I avoid it. Yeah, I'm not so self-obsessed. The question is, how has my body image changed? I'm not so self-obsessed because I sponsor girls who are anorexic. They don't like the way they look. Well, if they don't like the way they look, and they're a size zero, and I, what does it matter if you're a zero or a 22? And I went, well, okay, if they feel fat, then we're all the same, right? We're just all the same. We just got the same kookiness between our ears. 
so my body image changed. And I think the more I got out of self and the more into the enjoyment of life. And, for example, something happened um, with Sonia a couple of weeks ago. I was here. I was like, I was so bloated. She's like, Lucy, you look beautiful. I'm like, see, I don't know. So, you know, it's like, I don't know. So, and, you know, it comes and goes. I had two months ago, I was obsessed with my stomach. And I started, I, also, I don't look in mirrors. I don't look in mirrors. I, I do dance class. I don't look in mirrors. I don't, and I don't do that funky thing where you try jeans on and, you know, try about four pairs on to test how much weight you gain. I don't do that anymore either. I told my girlfriend once, I said, you know, I'm a size eight. She said, this too shall pass. <laughs> I said, yeah, it's totally true. <laughs> Thank you very much.